The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Or if you're watching the podcast rather than simply listening to it, then I am the disembodied voice of David Afshirod. I'm away from my soundproof booth somewhere deep in the heart of Texas and am winging my way to Hotlanta for DragonCon. I'll have a full report when I get back, but this week we bring you DJ Butler in discussion with Simon R. Green about Green's latest Ishmael Jones novel, Very Important Corpses. Let's take a listen. Hello and welcome. Uh, this is DJ Dave Butler. I'm uh, here with Simon R. Green to uh, talk about his novel, Very Important Corpses. It's out now. Um, we're excited to be able to bring this to U.S. readers. Uh, it's out now in the U.S. in trade paperback uh, format uh, and uh, all, all your favorite ebook formats, uh, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, as always, of course. Uh, Simon, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Now, uh, this is uh, this is my second Ishmael Jones novel, but uh, but but we're going to make no assumptions about the reader. So let's talk about the series a little bit here first. Um, tell us uh, who who is Ishmael Jones, at least as far as he knows at this point in the story. OK, <clears throat> let's start this way. Once upon a time, a star fell from the heavens and landed in an English field. Or to put it another way, an alien starship came howling in from the outer dark with its superstructure on fire and crashed in an English field. Now, the impact killed most of the crew except one. The transformation machines rewrote the alien to make him human, right down to his DNA, so he could move among us and not be noticed until help arrived. Unfortunately, the transformation machines were damaged in the crash and they wiped all knowledge of who and what he was before he was human. And that's our hero, Ishmael Jones. He has no memory of anything. He just, his first memory is as an adult stumbling across a field. By the time he's got his head together, he doesn't even remember where he first found himself. And he might've thought, you know, these vague ideas that he used to be an alien were just a delusion, except that he hasn't aged a day since 1963. Now, he spent most of his life working for various undercover organizations, trying not to be noticed. And he's learned to specialize in investigating cases of the weird and uncanny. These days, he works for the organization, a group so secret that Ishmael doesn't even know who they are or what they do. But they send him out to investigate strange occurrences and solve the occasional murder. And as long as they keep hiding him, he's quite happy to go on working for them. And that's our hero. Now, in the first book, uh, uh, Dark Side of the Road, it's an Agatha Christie style murder mystery. You've got a deserted house with a family and one by one people are dying. And in it, he meets Penny Belcourt, who becomes the love of his life and his partner in crimes. And together, the two of them are working together for the organization, solving mysteries. Fantastic. Um... And and Simon is uh, uh, physically uh, fair, 
Phys physically just looks ordinary, even maybe forgettable. Um, That's the idea. He, he moves among us. He looks like one of us. Like I said, he has to keep moving on. He has to keep changing his background, his identity, because he doesn't age, which is why he works for these subterranean organizations, because in today's increasing surveillance culture, they are the only people who can hide him well enough for him to stay off the radar. He has a continuing fear that, you know, if they ever find out who and what he is, he'll end up on somebody's dissecting table. Yeah. He's uh, uh, inside, though. So he's, 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 uh, he's no one to notice. But um, we presume because he's not human, uh, he's got some extraordinary um, abilities, right? Um, senses are sharper than human. He can see, hear, and smell things that we can't. He can take more punishment. The one physical, clear physical difference, his blood is golden. Yeah. Yeah, his senses are so sharp. I mean, he, he, in this book, he, he, he basically is the hound dog when one is required, right? And he go into a, a, a crime scene and sort of smell, uh, you know, the prior presence of, of, of other characters. Exactly, uh, it's one of the things that gives them an edge. Ishmael right. is um, an outsider, even though he's lived among us all these years, he isn't human. And he still has problems sometimes with people skills. That's where Penny comes in, she grounds him, she provides that human insight that he still sometimes lack. What he brings to it are the extra senses, the ability to see things from outside that perhaps we would miss, but he is, still one of us in the sense he thinks and feels like one of us yeah and he and still he, loves penny very much yeah and i want to come to that in a minute there's a sort of a poignant moment around uh, kind of touching on that point in the story but he's like it, it's his it's his other senses too right his vision is so sharp at one point there's a discussion about in the right circumstances he can see fingerprints right exactly uh, and uh, but he's also physically very um, he's very strong. He doesn't fight with a he doesn't carry a gun. What, why does he tell people he doesn't carry a gun? Ishmael always says that if you've got a gun, your first instinct is to use it. He's an undercover agent. His job is not to be noticed. His basic intent is always to go in, solve a problem, get out, and no one ever knows he was there. And also, I think it's it's that thing that because he lives among us and he's not one of us he doesn't have our instinct to solve things with weapons that's something that he's missing he's he's always trying to see the other person's point of view he's always trying to to work out the best way of doing things with the least harm yeah and he has the luxury in some sense of being able to do this because he's also physically very powerful we see we see much bigger apparently apparently stronger foes uh in this book and others who go to punch him for example and find that he's essentially immovable uh oh yeah one of my favorite bits i've used in other novels is that someone will throw a punch and he just grabs it in midair and stops it dead yeah if you can do that people think very hard about a second punch yeah yeah absolutely so but ishmael is always as i say he will think his way through a problem but if he has to, he will punch your lights out without a second thought. Yeah. 
and there's a uh there remains so we're we're this is book three is that right uh, is it the third book yeah so uh there 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 remain um many mysteries about himself that are still mysteries to him uh yeah um i mean i've just finished the 12th book in the series bain has just put it out which is the um uh the most recent book and as we go along each book he discovers something new it might be a new question or a new answer or a new thing that he can do by the time you've got to uh the later books he knows more but there's still um questions to be asked i mean i think it's the 10th book someone says to him what makes you think you're the only one your ship didn't crash it was shot down and suddenly you've got a whole new background for him to start looking into yeah that's cool um and there's a moment there's a moment in this book where uh that kind of is a reminder that he's he's not as he's not fragile like another human right there, there's there's a there's a reminder that, that he's different that is stark enough that um that penny is a little startled maybe frightened uh right and it's a very poignant kind of uh because 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 I, I don't know that he articulates it this way but he seems to want to be human you know he doesn't want to be different he he, he likes being in love right and yeah um towards the end of the book there's a moment where he has to access his alien side one of the great fears of ishmael is you know is he um a human who remembers being alien or an alien who's dreaming he's a human is he just a human mask on an alien and towards the end of the book the only way to save penny from a great danger is to let the alien side of him come to the surface Penny has never seen this before and it scares the hell out of her. And he finally has to, she's hiding from him. He tracks her down. And he says, I am human. Or how could I love you so much? And that brings her back out again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a great, uh, it's a wonderful moment. Um, so having said that, this is essentially uh, this is a this is a murder. It's a mystery in the sense that we start with a murder, uh, and it's a thriller in the the sense that the more murders happen, uh, and there seems to be a countdown of murders, and we have to we have to solve them and stop them. Um, so uh, we we see uh, Penny and Ishmael uh, in the Scottish Highlands, up on the shores of Loch Ness. Um, which is a very it's a very uh, interesting setting what 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 led you to pick that uh i mean essentially most of the action happens inside a building right it's it is a kind of a closed room mystery um why pick the scottish highlands okay there's two threads going on here one is as you say it takes place in uh, a large mansion and it's basically it was inspired by the Bilderberg group, which is a group of high level, high finance people who get together once a year to discuss very important things. I thought I'd like to, to do my version of that. So I came up with the Baphomet group who are concerned with security issues rather than economics. They get together once a year to discuss important matters and there's a murder. So, of course, they can't call in the authorities. So the organization sends Ishmael Jones in and Penny to investigate what's going on. 
and I wanted a setting that was completely off the map, so far away that no one would even know what was going on. And Loch Ness has always been one of my favourite mysteries, the background story. I, I grew up with it. I love it dearly. I'd already touched on it once in uh, another of my uh, series, The Secret Histories novels, uh, which is my Shaman Bond, the very secret agent books. And one of them is called The Spy Who Haunted Me. And there was a setting where I actually went to Loch Ness. Something came out of that. I've always wanted to go there, but I never sort of found the time. I thought, well, this is it. This is my opportunity. So I looked into it. There are only two or three places near Loch Ness, because it's right out in the back of beyond. When I tried to book, I was told they book about 10 years in advance. They're so popular. So I said to the travel guy, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, normally we recommend you go to Glasgow or Edinburgh, hire a car, drive out there, take a look and then drive back. I thought, no, that's not, you don't really get a sense of that. So I'll, I'll forget about it. So I went online, I found this guy who hired a boat, sailed from one end of Loch Ness to the other and filmed it and put it on a DVD. So I bought the DVD, watched it and made notes. So at least there's a certain verisimilitude to it. But I love the whole mystery of Loch Ness. There's been so many theories down the years, so many yes there is, no there isn't. I've always believed that if Nessie does exist, she's better off staying a legend. If there was proof, if they were shooting um, a local news story on the, on the banks of Loch Ness, and the monster's head came up and looked over the reporter's shoulder right into the camera, live on air, proof positive. And long before some hunter turned up with a rifle and tried to bag it with the bragging rights. Sure. And long before somebody tried to catch it and put it in an aquarium. And long before some do-gooder said, oh, we've got to put it somewhere. Said, no, Nessie is safer as a legend. So I choose to believe there's a monster there because it makes it more fun. Yeah. And I, I thought, right, there's my setting. Way out in the back of beyond, we've got the Baphomet group, we've put the two together. And having Loch Ness will make a nice distraction. Is there some connection to the monster? Is there some connection to the setting? It added a little extra level of mystery. Yeah, and one of the one of the one of the stories that is being told around the mansion when Ishmael and Penny arrive is the uh, the idea a, a legend that the family that used to own the house had some kind of monstrous child that maybe 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 was allowed to survive and lives in the lake and maybe returns to the house from time to time um, again this is this is based on a true story yeah. there is a castle in scotland um that's uh linked to the royal family that they stayed there several times down the generations and there was a legend that a child was born there which was hideously malformed it was the first born I was supposed to inherit, but of course it couldn't. So they just literally locked it in a room and waited for it to die. But it wouldn't die. And the legend was that hundreds of years later, it's still there locked in its room. And the story went that this is the 1920s, I think I'm right in saying, there was a big party going on with all the bright young things of the day. And they said, let's find this missing room. So they went to every room in the house, put a towel out the window, and they went outside to look for a window with no towel hanging out. And there were three. 
at which point the host came back, blew his top big time, kicked them all out, and nobody was allowed back for about 20 years. That's the story. So again, as most work writers do, you steal from the best and call it research. And I took yeah. that idea that there was this creature in Coronach House. Coronach is an old Scottish legend for a dirge, a lament, a sad song. But there was a creature in this house. And again, it adds this extra level. Is this connected to what's going on? Or is the murderer using the story as a distraction so you won't understand what he's really about? Yeah. Never trust yeah. my stories. There's always levels going on. Yeah, well, let's 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 poke at a couple more of those levels because I, I I I love them. So uh, Baphomet, uh, and you talk about this in the text, so a reader, right? But that's a real yeah. world name. Also, where did, where does the name Baphomet come from? This comes from the Knight Templars, who used to have their base in the island of Malta. They were a very charity-minded group of Christian knights. However, they made the mistake of basically lending a lot of money to various kings and then making the mistake of asking for it back at some point. They were slandered as devil worshippers. It was said there was a labyrinth under the island of Malta where the Knights Templars worshipped a demon called Baphomet. And I've made it my, um, shall we say, little tribute in many of my books to say, hey, there is a Baphomet, but he wasn't a bad guy. So you've got St. Baphomet's this and Baphomet's church and Baphomet this. So he, he pops up in many of my books. That's fun. Uh, yeah, especially never, never uh, uh, be owed money by Philippe Le Bel of France, right? King Ooh. Philippe. Uh, or even uh, worse, James II of England, who was a complete swine. Read up on the guy sometime. What he did to the Jews in London, it's it's still one of the huge crimes of, of English history. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so that's like uh, 1309 or something, right? Uh, mm. Jacques de Molay, the last Templar Grand Masters, burned to the stake. Uh, yep. They were wiped out almost to a man. Yeah. They, they exist mainly as a legend now rather than history. And, and it's a wonderful legend because, A, it's generated a lot of literature, right? Something like yeah. uh, Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose is all about the Templars. But also a lot of kind of fringe history, right? People, um, oh, I'm not even remembering, like, um, I've heard the titles now. There's some famous books proposing that the Templars, you know, were guardians of the the literal descendants of Jesus Christ, who were the Merovingian kings of France, or right, like Dan Brown kind Pretty of. Pretty much every stuff. legend you can think of was connected to Knights Templar, the Merovingian bloodline, right. the Holy Grail, uh, the severed head of John the Baptist that would speak prophecy. They were all linked. It's basically because it was such a big story at the time, every legend got linked to it at some time or another. Yeah. Which yeah. For people like. You know, it, writers like us, we need great. We've got something we can use here. It's hard to beat the real world. The real world has a lot of crazy stuff in it. Oh, the world is stranger than my books will ever be. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so this, so the Baphomet group, there's, there's all this great resonance, you know, secret societies, the great and powerful, who are they evil, right? 
Um, the the other uh, um, or an other allusion or reference you make, um, and I and, and this is sort of part of the setting too, is uh, um, Alistair Crowley had a house up there in the locks, very famously. Back yeah, in, that was a house called uh, Bolliskine, right yeah. on the bank of Loch Ness, which was later lived in by a member of Led Zeppelin. Yes, that's right. Uh, Alistair Crowley is one of the great mysteries of England. He, he, he was a self-proclaimed great beast, most evil man in the world. And the more you read about him, the more fascinating he becomes. Uh, in the First World War, he lived in New York writing anti-British propaganda for the Germans. And later in the 30s, was proved to be a double agent working for British intelligence at the time. And we know this because in the Second World War, he joined British Secret Service and worked for them. And his boss was Ian Fleming, writer of the James Bond books. And Ian Fleming went on record to say that the bad guy in his first novel, Casino Royale, was based on Alistair Crowley. So the connections you make once you start digging into this guy make him great fun. Um, I've referenced him in various books of mine as the character Crow Lee who comes to a terrible end in the secret history books. But I like, again, he's one of, I like to, to dot them around in the background. So he's, he's there to have fun with. But again, he's linked to Loch Ness. He's supposed to have performed a particular magical working, the Crimson or Scarlet Lady working, which backfired on him horrendously and destroyed him as a master of ceremonial magic. And when, I forget who it was in Led Zeppelin, I'm trying to think. I don't know. Might have been Robert Plant. Whoever it was, they did say they lived there for about six months and then had to leave because they said, man, the vibes were not mellow. And he departed at haste. I think it burned down some decades ago and probably for the best. Yeah. But it adds this great ambiance, right, to, oh, to yeah. very important corpses. Um, so, um, all right, so uh, uh, Ishmael and Penny are basically up in the Highlands. They meet the Colonel, who's their sort of case officer with the organization, capital O. He's the middleman. He's the only contact they have with the organization. The organization gives the Colonel his orders. The Colonel gives Ishmael and Penny their marching orders. So he's the only contact they've got. He's the second Colonel, the first Colonel that they meet in the first book dies and he's been replaced by this new one so Ishmael and Penny are building a relationship with him which grows as the books go on through the series he's an authority figure he is very much you know ex-guards he's um civil servant-ish and he's aristocratic which makes him the perfect authority figure for Ishmael to react against I mean Every time they meet, Ishmael cannot resist, you know, puncturing the man's vanity and bringing him down. But they work well together. You know, the colonel knows if he gives Ishmael a penny the job, they will do the job. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so what's the setup, right? So uh, there was previously, so, okay, so the Baphomet group, uh, it's 12, um, heads of big commercial concerns slash wealthy families um yeah 
and they meet once a year to discuss security issues and yeah. kind of secret masters of the universe, WEF, Bilderberg kind of That's the idea. Thing. Um, but uh, we, we know, or we think we know, or we hear two things going in, right? One is that there's been a murder that precipitates this, right? And who, who's yeah. been murdered and what do we know about it? It's interesting, the organization have already sent an agent in to investigate this first murder. And the investigator has been murdered. That's why they turned to Ishmael and Penny, because they are the best operatives the operator has. So they're not just investigating a part of the house, but also one of their owners being killed. That makes it personal. But they've also been told by the colonel there's a possibility one of the 12 members of the Baffinic group has already been murdered before this and we've been replaced by an imposter. So they're trying to figure out who's actually dead, who's actually alive, what's going on, why are we here, what's the best thing to do. And as we go through the book, gradually more people die, the threats become bigger, become more closely linked, surprisingly, to Ishmael's past. He discovers an old friend and associate of his is there. They've worked together in the past. He's actually, you know, the head of uh, local security in the house. And they're working together, trying to find out what's going on. Yeah. And gradually realizing that they have different end games in sight. They're not working towards the same end. And they're gradually discovering, although they're old friends, old colleagues, they can't trust each other anymore. Yeah. Again, another level. Yeah. Chris, Christopher Barron is the character. And he there's a, there's a moment where he sort of tries to offer like a truce, right? Mm. Ishmael, you can, you can get out now. Uh, and it was sort of the moment where Ishmael kind of, I think kind of really has to say, okay, like, it's not just that I have suspicions, like actually this guy, this in some way, Baron knows more than he's telling me, right? Absolutely. This is the nature of the game they're in. Agents always know more than they tell other people. And you have to work out who's on whose side, what end are they working towards? And even though Ishmael knows this guy really well and likes him, this growing sense of I cannot trust him is pushing them apart. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that uh, um, gives one of the kind of subplots that gives texture to the story is that sort of uh, the the collegial uh, uh, relationship that that is sort of uh, starts tense, but but um, right. Can, can it survive? What will it look like by the end of the book? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I love the setup because like on the one hand, right, it's, uh, there's all this kind of like esoteric, uh, kind of like, you know, occult echoes. Um, and then on the other hand, there's, there's all the like, uh, conspiracy theorist UFO world government. Right. And it just does them both. Uh, and, and, uh, it's, um, I don't have a question really, Simon. I just, it's, I enjoy the aesthetic. Kudos to you for pulling it off so well. Thank you. The point of it is to work as the reader goes through, it's trying to work out 
what story am I actually following here? What's relevant? Which parts of all the various things going on are actually a part of the murder mystery? What should I be following? And of course, Ishmael and Penny are right there in the middle of it. And they're the ones sorting out this matters, this doesn't matter. This matters, but not for now. And gradually, as you go through the book, various people are uncovered to be not who, the, who they think they are. There's um, certain members in the 12 um, have their own agendas, which we gradually uncover as we go through. There's a reporter, an investigative reporter, who's actually masquerading as somebody in the house who has to be uncovered. And of course, once all these things start coming to light, it's like, who can you trust? What can you trust? And it's down to Ishmael and Penny to say, this is fact, this is what we follow. And they pursue it right to the end. And of course, at the end of the book, they know the truth and they have solved the mystery. Yeah. One of the things I liked working with, um, there's, there's some background characters I had fun with that the 12, basically to keep themselves amused when they're not discussing the ways of the world, they've brought a number of professional sex escorts with them. Yes. We're basically just sitting around in their own private bar, just waiting to be called on duty. And of course they have to be um, interrogated by um, Ishmael and Penny. And I have more fun writing those scenes than anything else in the book, I think. Particularly one of them is a character in it called Scarlet. She's popped up in various books, various series that I've written. I've always said, uh, perhaps the best known of my series is the Nightside books. And it's based on the time when I was a student back in the 70s, I was in London. I spent a lot of time in Soho. And it's based on things I, I saw, people I knew and all the rest of it. Scarlet is based on an actual working girl I knew back in those days. And she pops up in, in various guises throughout my books. Uh, probably the best way to, you can find a short story of mine called Street Wizard, which is a one-off and it's actually set in Soho and it's based on real people, real settings, real locations. And she's in that where she's just called Red, because you can guess why, because she had bright red hair, of course. Yeah. And there's a wonderful bit at the end, you know, when he says, look, all this horrible stuff you see every day and all the people you have to deal with, why don't you get out and do something else? And she says, you know, the famous line, what, leave show business? <laughs> Scarlet's in there and she's great fun. Does does the real person know that she showed up in your stories? Oh, I have not seen her since the 70s. I like to think she's out there. She probably married a minor aristocrat somewhere. I like to think. Yeah. But no, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, uh, how fun. Uh, how interesting. You see, I, I went to Soho originally. Um, we're talking uh, 73, 76. I went in there to find what was the very first specialist science fiction bookshop in Britain. It was down Berwick Street off Oxford Street. It was called Dark They Were and Golden Eyed after a Ray Bradbury story. And it was the very first one. I went in there. They had books, comics, magazines from America. They had fanzines. They had all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff I never even knew existed before. But to get to it, you had to go right into the heart of Soho, you know, where there's working girls leaning out a window saying, come on, darling, we'll show you what to do with it. <laughs> and I was a student. I was like 
18 years old. I'm blushing bright red and I'm going, leave me alone. I've got no money. After that, they left me alone. I was invisible. But it was a wonderful, sleazy place. All kinds of trouble to get into if you went looking for it. And of course, I did at that age. But Dark They Were is why I went in there. And it was a wonderful place. This is years before Forbidden Planet. Yeah, sure. So um, that's what took me in there. But it was like finding a whole new world. That's fantastic. And so we see it here in, in yeah, so we have several groups of people, right? There's the there's the staff, the ordinary staff, who pretty quickly barricade themselves in a room and don't want to, once yeah. more bodies start hitting the floor, they basically hunker down and, and uh, demand to be left alone. And the major domo um, is a woman, surprisingly. And I love the fact, again, she's an authority figure like the Colonel for Ishmael to react against. But she's the one who basically knows everything that's going on because she works with everyone above stairs, below stairs. Mm -hmm. And she turns out to have a major role in what's really going on. And of course, you have Ishmael has to like peel away the layers of the onion to get to the center and find out what's really going on. Yeah. Uh... Servants know everything. Yeah. And that's a, just just to unpack that phrase above stairs, below stairs, above stairs, you're talking about the guests in the household. Right. And below exactly. stairs are the servants. Exactly. Upstairs, downstairs. You probably remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A famous uh, television show. Yeah, Downton Abbey is the, the modern equivalent. Abs absolutely. I actually lived in the UK for a few years, but uh, uh it's a great, very colorful phrase. I just want to uh, unpack it in case anyone's not familiar. Um, so, uh, okay, and we have the escorts who hang around the bar uh, and, and, unless and until they're summoned. We, and we have the 12, and we never learn, uh, I think right to the end, we never learn any of their actual names. Um, they, they don't know, they themselves don't know who yeah. they actually are. They, they have uh, the, the months of the year as code names. And yeah. as one grows old and dies, somebody else moves in and take over that month as the identity. It's important to them that they have, it enables them to have a distance to look at the material they're talking about and not let personalities get in the way. Or so they think. But as we dig deeper into the mystery, it gradually becomes clear that it's not helping that it's not distancing them from the material, but only from each other. And inevitably when you do that, people will start to connect with each other behind the scenes for their own reasons. And that's when it hits the fan and it hits the fan so hard, it breaks the fan. Yeah. W were any of these people, uh, were any of them, like in your head, were you modeling them on any real people or like what kinds of people were you, like, is this, should we ask it's like Richard Branson or is it like, or is it more like some senior uh, bureaucrat, uh, Humphrey Appleby type who, uh, like, w what sorts, of, um, what were you thinking in terms of what the, what the day-to-day -day life of these people was? I did some reading on the Bilderberg group and it, it comes down to, you can find as many opinions as you want. Nobody really knows anything for sure. And it, it rapidly became clear it didn't matter who these people were because they come and go so quickly. Somebody who's, you know, a huge player today can lose everything over the weekend. 
So I decided very quickly not to base any one person on any one real person, but to take a bit here and a bit there and sort of like point in like, it's this kind of person. And you can't always be sure. I mean, you look at Elon Musk at the moment. I mean, I always thought he was like one of us because he was into science fiction and he had his own rockets and the rest of it. And then he took over Twitter. And we all took one look and went, oh dear, something, you know, the wheels have come off the wagon big time here. <laughs> so, you know, if I'd been writing about him five years ago, I would have had one view. If I was writing about him now, I'd have a whole different view. Mm. So the Baphomet group, are the 12 months of the year and if anything the characters are decided by how we feel about each month of the year so november and december are the older wintry characters whereas march and april are the younger more vigorous characters so you so you develop a sense of who the characters are from the code names they've taken yeah um there's a, there's a, and each of them comes with one bodyguard. And there's this, there's this really fun scene where, again, remembering it, that Ishmael travels around unarmed. Um, he basically deliberately goes and provokes them to, sh to show them all who's boss. So they will shut up and do as they're told. Um, that is, is basically Ishmael's plan usually. When he walks into a situation, he, he looks around and says, what do I have to do to make these people sit up and take notice? And he will pick out a particular thing and do it large and do it big so he doesn't have to do it again. And this guy, the, the, the 12 members each have their own security. And he realizes if he has to start negotiating access and he has to start, you know, what can I do and what I can't do, he's not going to get anywhere. So he just basically kicks the asses of all the guard, security guards, says, don't make me have to do this again. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and, 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 and then I don't want to get too much further into the plot, but we get, you know, uh, additional deaths. Uh, it's, it's pretty gruesome, right? The deaths are, maybe it's worth saying that. This is no um, uh, uh, murder she wrote where, you know, there's, there, like, there's, there's a corpse and maybe, maybe it was poisoned or maybe it was shot. Um, I have written that kind of Agatha Christie murder mostly, but this wasn't. Uh, right. The whole point of making the, uh, the deaths very bloody and very uh, unpleasant was, it, was to point the mystery is, is it the creature? Is it this terrible, destructive animal that's that's lurking in the house? And there is that sense, you know, all the way through the book. Are we looking at a human killer? Are we looking at a creature? Are we looking at something else? And the sheer bloody nature of the uh, of the murders is there to keep you off balance. What exactly? What kind of story are we looking at? When Ishmael uh, asked to see the body of the very first uh, agent who was sent in, when he examines it, he finds two small puncture marks on the back of the neck. And of course, when you say those words, you start thinking vampire. This is Ishmael with his extraordinary vision. So he looks into the two holes and sees 
the brain is missing, the head is empty. It's been sucked out through the holes. And that immediately starts thinking, wait a minute, what story are we in? What exactly are we facing? And it's not, I think, what until the last few chapters, we finally find out what that was about. I think it's a real, oh, that's what was going on moment. Yeah. I do like to, to have those moments when suddenly the audience goes, ah, I know where we're going now. Yeah. So there's these crime scenes and there's this kind of element of trying to figure out, uh, is this human or monster? But also how much of what we're looking at is the result of the nature of the killing and how much of it is deliberately trying to throw us off or is it some kind of a theater or a, a mask? Exactly. Um, and one and, of the things I like to do is, yes, these are horrific deaths and yes, terrible things have happened. But I always still find, I try to find humor in the situation, to, you know, to, so that you can step back and take it in the stride. There's a moment when Ishmael is, is investigating that first murdered agent. He sees the two holes at the back of his neck and he pushes his finger into one of the holes, like you kind of do, and then discovers his finger is stuck and he can't get it out. And there's a certain amount of everybody standing around looking embarrassed as he has to wrestle his finger out of the hole in the back of the neck. And that kind of takes the edge off the moment. You're not quite as freaked out as you were before. And it helps to make, I think, Ishmael look a little bit more human. Yeah. His finger comes out with a big sucking pop sound. Yep. <laughs> Penny, and Penny is standing there with her hands over her face going, oh, God, I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, a lot of fun. What what haven't we talked about that we ought to touch on in in the uh, in the series or uh, in in this book? I'll say one more thing. I said earlier on that Ishmael, throughout all the books, has no memory of who and what he used to be before he was human. But he has dreams. He has moments, and it is his great fear that just possibly the alien is sleeping in the back of his head and might wake up and take over. And he is worried about that. He's scared about what the alien might be. So when he is forced to let the, the, that part of him come to the service, because it's the only way he can save Penny, and the alien comes out and it acts in a humane way. And it's the first time alien that, that Ishmael can realize, perhaps I don't need to be that scared anymore. I think that's an important moment. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, the uh, book is Very Important Corpses, uh, out now in uh, trade paperback and ebook format. It's book three, and uh, you, you just finished book 12. So uh, yep. we should be seeing uh, the Bane editions, I think, in pretty regular uh, cadence, just coming out until we catch up to you, I think, is the plan. That's the plan, uh, I'm told. Yeah, fantastic. Tony seems a big fan. She, she's made a point of saying that she actually enjoys these books, which is always a good thing to hear from the editor. Yeah, yeah it really is. <laughs> um, fantastic. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Always good to talk to you. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer.
Inventor Girl Genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Tinker woke with a start. Her head seemed big and full of air. The pain in her left hand had deepened into a constant dull ache. Turning her head, she saw the empty chair beside the bed. Windwolf. A vase of flowers sat on the nightstand next to the pitcher of water. The vase was elfin, a deceptively simple twist of glass, a thick base sweeping up to an impossibly thin rim, elegant beyond words. The flowers were black-eyed Susans. She guessed that the flowers were from her cousin and that the hospice staff had provided the vase. As usual, the bright wildflowers made her smile. A note card leaned against the vase, printed in oil cans neat, over-careful hand, and smudged with engine grease. When I got back with the gas, they told me that your hand was going septic and that you were in surgery. I'm sorry I didn't check it before I left. I looked in just now, but you were still sleeping. If we want food and fuel for the next 30 days, I've got to go make sure to get it now. I hate leaving you alone. I'll be back as soon as I can. Get well soon. Love, Orville. Orville. He must truly be rattled if he was using his real name. There was a light tap on the door, and Maynard, God himself, opened it up. You're awake. Yes. Tinker wondered what God wanted with little her. I didn't make the connection between you and the Tinker until Windwolf told me about some of what you did to keep him alive. She shrugged. Happens all the time. No one expects the legendary Tinker to be a little snot-nosed girl. No smile. Maybe God didn't have a sense of humor. She often suspected that. How old are you? Maynard asked. Sixteen? Seventeen? Eighteen. As of last month. Parents? Little alarms were going off. Where's this going? I'd like to know who I'm working with. Make that big alarms. Since when am I working with you? Since today. I've got a bit of a mystery I need solved, and maybe you can help. They say you're fit to leave. He left it nebulous as to whether this was a declinable personal request or an official demand. Maynard certainly wasn't someone she wanted to alienate. As God of Pittsburgh, he could make her life hell. Now that she was a legal adult, she had nothing to hide. At least, she didn't think she did. Okay, let me figure out what they did with my clothes, and you can show me this mystery. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Simon R. Green and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. 
This is David F. Shirod coming to you from my remote soundproof bunker somewhere in the wilds of America between Texas and Georgia. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.